Well, we're, we're kind of continuing along in, um, in our look this kind of year through May, uh, dealing with the beginning of a movement in the, in the church. And, and uh, last, last week, uh, we were in John 3. Today, we're going to be in John 4. And in, in, in John 3 and 4, um, what you have is Christ encountering a couple of people, and it's, it's a very unique. Before I do that, I, I do need to say, I forgot, I was supposed to tell you all, I think they're uh, a little bit low. In Awana, especially with babies, if anybody wants to go. They may have enough by now. I don't know if they got enough yet. Troy, do they get enough? They're okay now. But, you know, if you ever want to, available, if you want to let, um, the best person, I guess, is to let Tanya, the children's ministry director, know that if they ever are in a crunch on Wednesday, you'll be happy to go help with some. Usually what they need is you just to go with the babies because they'll move people around to cover the kids. You're welcome to go do that. We always appreciate it. We always appreciate wherever you work. and We have so many kids coming now that we never have enough workers, which is good. It's a great thing. But even on Sunday mornings, there, there, there are a lot of Sundays when even if everybody's here that works, we got a lot of kids. Uh, they give me the numbers uh, on Tuesdays and staff meeting, and sometimes it's just amazing. You don't even know that that many. I think because they're short, you just look right past them. Uh, but they're there. But in... Um, we saw last week a radical encounter with a righteous man. We're going to see tonight a radical encounter with a sinful woman. And the interesting thing um, that John does, and, and you know, the Gospels, you know, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, wrote, wrote you know, they, they took what they had. And John, being an eyewitness to so much, really had insight. They, they arranged things for a reason. Um, you know, we're used to everything in our Western mindset, being in chronological order. I mean, it's how we like things. You go A, B, C, D, you know, in order and, and relate. But, but they tended to write things out in ways that were relational. Not so much just topical, but relational. And so there may be some things happening that kind of coincide. And, and you see that in Mark. We'll kind of see that. You know, we've seen that in our series of Mark. And, you know, between two verses, a year passes, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, they, Mark and Matthew especially will, will group things together uh, that may not have happened consecutively because they deal with an issue, perfectly acceptable way of writing. Um, and so you have here, you know, under leadership of the Holy Spirit, John is laying out Christ encountering two very different people. I mean, first, you, you have a man and a woman, which, you know, in that day and age, culturally could be significantly different. You have a man who is Jewish and a woman who is Samaritan. I'll talk about the Samaritan issue uh, a little bit later in, in just a few moments. You have, you have someone who is um, a, a rabbi, a, a, a Pharisee, wealthy, you know, highly, highly esteemed. You have a woman who was looked down upon almost because of her her sin and the sinfulness of her life. So you, you have people just in, in, in radical extremes. And yet Christ deals with them. And, and he meets them exactly where they are. Uh, when, you know, I'm, I'm at a place in life as a pastor where I don't really look for programs for evangelism. I did a, a, our convention had a survey they sent to me yesterday and want me to fill some stuff out and trying to find out what programs we have for evangelism. I, we don't have any because I don't think it's needed because there's a way biblically that Jesus and the apostles did things in Scripture. You see that, that we ought to follow. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is how he took who he was. And, you know, because Jesus has an advantage in that he's Jesus. We talk about Jesus, he just talks about himself. That helps. 
But he, he, he deals, in what you see in John 3 and 4, you see him dealing with people from two completely different, different cultures. And yet he manages to do the same thing, focus what they really need. And so we, we come, in, in, in John chapter 3, that ends with um, dealing with John the Baptist, uh, and, and the Baptist pointing out uh, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, and then in verse in chapter 4, it starts off, Therefore, in light of what goes on before, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So interesting, we sometimes forget that Jesus continued the baptism ministry of John, uh, not for salvation, but for that sense of repentance and that sense of renewal. The Pharisees weren't too thrilled with John, and they weren't too thrilled when they found out Jesus. And Jesus had eclipsed, he had gone past whatever John was doing. Most of this was down in the area of Judea, the area around Jerusalem. So it says in verse 3, he left Judea, and he went again back home, in essence, to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So let me just explain a little bit to you about the whole thing with uh, Samaria. If you were to look, uh, if your Bible has maps, if you have a, you know, a hard paperback Bible and not looking on your iPhone or smart device. And by the way, most of the time now, unless I'm, I'm teaching uh, or, or just writing in my office, I, I look at the Bible that I have in my app. This morning I was outside looking at the mountains and I'm reading through my Bible app, so I get that. I do that all the time. When I, when I go places, I hate to say this, the preacher no longer packs a Bible wherever he goes because I have a phone. That has all that on there, and it makes it makes. That's how I do it. Some of you do the same thing. I think it's okay, you know. Unless unless you're going to carry the original autographs, which we don't have, pretty much doesn't matter how you get it there, right? You're real good with that. So uh, if you have a, a an old fashioned Bible <laughs> that has maps in the back, and you look at the, at the time of Jesus, you see there's Jer- Jerusalem and Judea. There's Galilee in between it, Samaria, and Samaria was the home of Samaritans. To understand this, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to go back uh, to about 722 B.C. when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes the things that are in the Old Testament are really, really helpful for us understanding the New Testament. And in, in the Old Testament times, in the book of Kings, 2 Kings, we see the, the northern kingdom after, after the death of Solomon. We see, you know, the, the first Kings actually. We see the, the northern kingdom had formed and they split away. And they were so sinful and they were so caught up in paganism that in 722 the Assyrians destroyed them. And when they destroyed them, they took the ten tribes. You've heard the ten lost tribes of Israel. That was in. They took them away. Uh, and they left some people there. And they brought, as was common, when you deported people, you put other people you deported from someplace else and you brought them there. Then in the southern kingdom was destroyed by the Babylonians or defeated by the Babylonians uh, in 587. They did the same thing. They deported a large group of people. And they put other people, and they put them back there. Now, the people that existed in the Holy Land, the Promised Land, from the time after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem until the Jews came back, Ezra, Nehemiah, and all that group, until they started coming back, they developed, and they're kind of what we call the Samaritans. Uh, and it's more complicated than that, but you get the picture. Then when, when the Jews started coming back under the, the rule of the Persians, and the first wave came back, and they were poor, and they were, they were basically faithful uh, to the ways of God, they ran into these Samaritans, this different group of people, and they kind of coexisted with their big differences. Then you read about Ezra and Nehemiah and all that stuff. But what the Samaritans did 
is they took basically what, what we see in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And they changed some of it. So they had their own version of the Pentateuch. And one of the major things they did is, is this. That the place of worship was not the temple in Jerusalem. That the place of worship was on Mount Gerizim. Now the whole point of the temple being in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount was based on the fact that that is where Abraham had offered to sacrifice Isaac. And David had his encounter with the Lord on Mount Moriah and, and all that stuff. And that's where the temple was built. But the Samaritans said the temple, that, that Abraham sacrificing Isaac was on Mount Kerizim in the area of Samaria, in the middle area. Uh, and it was by a place that uh, Joseph had purchased, I mean, Jacob uh, had, had bought a well, dug a well there. And then that's the place where Joseph's body was buried. And so that became their area. And they had a different way of doing things. And so their worship of God, as we, and they had the same God, Yahweh, but they worshipped him a little bit different. They had a little bit different view of scriptures. And they looked at the Messiah differently than they did. So that there's animosity developed between the Jews when they came back from Babylon. As that grew up, animosity grew. And then in the inner biblical period, between the end of the old and the beginning of the new, when the Maccabean revolt came and all that, there was a lot of clashing. And a guy named John Hyrcanus, uh, somewhere I think 127, completely destroyed the temple of the Samaritans, and it didn't exist. And so there was just bitter hatred. I mean, it was, there was bitter animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, so much so that when you were traveling from Galilee to Judea, especially Jerusalem, oftentimes they would not go through Samaria, because normally if you were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, you were going for a sacrifice to, to the temple, and you didn't want to be unclean, so they would skirt and they would go across the Jordan River, go down, and come back around. And it'd be kind of like, you know, being from Texas and, and not liking people from Oklahoma any, and so instead of going to Kansas, instead of just going to Oklahoma, nothing, no offense, nothing personal, you're all right, you barely, you know, you would cut through either Arkansas or New Mexico, go around, that's what you would do. But on the way back, because they were leaving the temple, oftentimes they would go through Samaria. They take the shorter distance. And so all of it, I'm telling you all this, so you need this kind of this background. So the fact that they're going through Samaria is a big deal. But Jesus does things that are a big deal, right? So you got that. So they came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. By the way, it's still there. You can still go to Jacob's well. It's one of the few places in all of the Holy Land where you, that, that is where it's supposed to be, we know for sure. And, and, you know, and Jesus was there. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. So you got this. Verse 7. Uh, as in verse 6 says, Jesus was worried from his journey. He sat there at the well. It was the sixth hour. Then in verse 7, a woman came of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to the sea to buy food. Now here's what you've got to understand. Here is Jesus sitting at the well. Jacob's well. It's a famous well. And it's middle of the day. It's noon. It's the hottest part of the day. And he had sent, you know, his guys on in to get food. Now this is before the formal calling of the disciples that we saw, you know, in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15 and 16, 7, 8 and all that. But he still got this following. It's still, you know, the basic guys, Peter and Andrew and all that. And so he's here all alone at noon and this woman shows up. Now you need to understand this about this woman. 
The women normally came to draw water twice a day. In fact, it's still true to this day. Back then, the women would go to draw water. They'd go in the morning when it's cool, in the evening when it's cool. A lot of them in that culture still do that today. So, you know, that, that's just the way the culture worked. The fact that she was there in the middle of the day was kind of an anomaly. And we would understand that she was there because the people that she had in her hometown did not care for her. We're going to find out a little bit because of her sinfulness. So this was a woman who was basically an outcast. Now, she was an outcast from the perspective of the Jews, and she was an outcast from the perspective of her own people. She was there in the middle of the day. Now, here's something you need to realize. In that day and age, day and age a man would not have a conversation with a woman without somebody else being around, the, the spouse. Normally, the, the spouse, the husband or the woman, would normally be there. So what's about to happen is completely crazy. Especially a rabbi. Jesus by now was recognized as a rabbi. So you have a guy who was considered, certainly by his disciples, as a man of religious stature, a prominent person. They thought already of him the Messiah. He's Jewish. He is, is unbelievably educated. And in the middle of the day, he's going to have an encounter with someone who is the exact opposite. She's a Samaritan. She's a she. Okay? She's despised by her own people. I mean, she's the complete opposite. She's also the complete opposite of Nicodemus, who Jesus encountered in night on, on uh, chapter 3. So notice this also. Nicodemus, he encountered at night. The woman at the well, he encountered in the middle of the day. The woman at the well is one of the really important stories in Scripture about helping us understand to connect with people. I'm about to do in the next 20 to 25 minutes what I sometimes do in four to six weeks. So I have, I have several sermon series on this chapter. Some of them go four weeks, some of them go six weeks. You're going to get it in about 25 minutes. So I don't know what I'm going to leave out or if I'm just going to talk real fast. So whatever. So here's the thing. He said, give me a drink. He asked for water. He commands for water. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman. So notice right off the bat, she is, con- she is pointing out the obvious difference. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't like each other. And you're asking me for something. You're asking me for a drink of water. So she already notices there is a, there is a huge disconnect between the two of them. Let me just point out, oftentimes in the culture we encounter in our life, there are huge disconnects between people who need Jesus and us. One of the reasons churches struggle so much is most churches keep trying to reach people like them. And people like them, so theoretically, don't need Jesus. They already got him. Churches that understand that people who aren't like them are the people who they need to connect to do a far better job of helping people come to faith. And you'll see what I mean about that a little bit more in a minute. So Jesus said to her, this is, this is great, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus immediately turns the issue to about something dealing with her need. When, when Christ encounters people, Christ rarely deals with the person on the level they want to deal with. She wants to get in. and we, the, the subtlety and subtext of this that you don't always see in the English. 
She wants to get into a discussion about their differences. This is not about water. This is, she wants to get into a conversation with this Jewish guy. And she probably, because of the way Jesus may or may not be dressed, she probably understands there's something distinguished about him. Who knows? But the main thing is, she wants to get into with him. She wants to part out their differences. And he is going to get, wants to get into a discussion that has nothing to do with their differences. In fact, here's the thing he says. The issue is about water. But it's not about physical water. It's about living water. And here's what he says. If you knew who you were talking to, you would be talking about this wonderful water that is living water. Now, water, we all know, is a necessity for life, physical life. The idea of living is that which has life. is the way it should be. It is, it is flowing. The water at Jacob's well, living water was normally considered water from a stream or a river. So if you want to go pull out a glass of water from the Rio Grande, it is living water. I don't know if that's a good idea. When I was pastoring in Laredo, that would have been no. <laughs> I don't know how good the water is up here in Crucis, but I don't know if I've told you, I've lived on the Rio Grande three times in my life, here at Edinburgh and in, in Laredo. Uh, so I just, so as a rule, I don't ever drink from that. But that's living water. The water in Jacob's well came from rain seepage. It would seep in. And so it was, it was, it was not that it was dead water, but it was water that was collected. It was not considered living water. So he's talking about a type of water fundamentally different from what they have, not only in terms of living or not, but from the spiritual aspect. So he says to her, you would want living, living water. And he says, you would be asking me for a drink. The tables would be turned. So she said to him, you have nothing to draw with, and the water is deep, the well is deep. Where then do you get living water? And then she wants to go back to making this a religious discussion. She is trying to get into an antagonizing conversation with Jesus. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Notice, she wants to get in to a confrontation with Christ over religious issues. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have experienced in trying to deal with people about Jesus, they want to get into issues that I simply don't care about. They want that they need Christ, and they want to talk about, you know, doctrinal issues. Well, why don't you Baptist dance? Because we're uncoordinated. I don't know why we don't dance. Who cares why we don't dance? We dance all the time. Why don't Baptists drink? Oh, give me a break. Most of the Baptists I know drink. They just do it privately, you know. Now you're more open about it. You know why? You, okay, I'm not going to tell you that show. You know Okay, I'm not going to tell that one. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. My filter is kicking in, honey. Be proud of me. I'm kicking that filter in right there. It'll probably drop away later on. But, but this is the thing. And a lot of times, they, you know, and it happens so much, you know, they, they want to talk about creation. They want to talk about why did God, you know, do this? Why did this happen? And they want to talk about things that had nothing to do with, the, with, with, with salvation. Uh, last week I wasn't here because six of the staff uh, were uh, going off to a conference. And one of the things we were talking about at the conference the next day, it was actually on Thursday, we had to drive to Phoenix uh, the night before or the day before. And you know, one, of the, one of the big issues is, is trying to remind us that the fundamental thing about the Christian faith is that it's centered on a person, Jesus, and most importantly the resurrection of Jesus. That the key fundamental issue in life is to help people come to contact with the resurrected Jesus, and not to get caught up and drawn into battles about other things that don't impact their salvation. 
This is exactly what was happening here. She was trying to draw him off into a religious discussion. And notice, Jesus didn't get drawn off into that. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But that water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up eternal life. So he's going back to the issue of eternal life in living water. Notice, he's dealing with the real issue, eternal life. She says to him, sir, give me this water and I will not be thirsty nor come all the way to, to draw. So she, the, the idea when you read in the Greek is that she's kind of messing with him, okay? She understands that he's not necessarily talking about that water, real water. But she's saying, if you've got this kind of water, why don't you give it to me? And so there, there's this, there was this tension that she's building with Jesus. There's this constant tension that she has there. And then Jesus is about to change all that. He says, I'll tell you what. And Jesus, understanding that it's really not proper for him to be having a conversation with this woman by, by the water, says, why don't you go call your husband and come here? So here's what you do. Go get your husband, and let's continue having this conversation. Now, Jesus knows all about this woman, and he knows what she's about to say, and this is a big breakthrough for her. The woman said, I don't have a husband. Now, you know, that's why she was there in the middle of the day, because of her status in life. Now, technically, she's correct. She doesn't have a husband in the most technical sense. So Jesus points out the obvious to her, and to which she doesn't really reply much. He said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom whom you now have is not your husband. And this you have said truly. And so now he gets to the heart of her matter. And the heart of the matter is simply this. She is a person who in life, is living in such a way that it's obviously not fitting with whatever God wants. I mean, even, it's not just that in Jewish life, but in the Samaritan world, her lifestyle is completely at odds with what would be expected. So she is living in a life that is far from where God would want it to be. So Christ gets to the heart of the matter. He's not condemning her. He's not pointing a finger at her and judging her. He's not calling her any names. He's pointing out a very simple fact. Your problem, fundamentally, is not about religion. Your problem is about your life, and your life is messed up. I say this a lot in, in trying to help us in the world culture we live in, because our culture has changed. When I first started off in ministry, you could get away a lot with pointing out people's sins, because you know, it's just the way we did it. You don't really do that much anymore. You know, you, you've got to be careful that you don't come across in that way of, of, of judging the sinfulness of their life. But that doesn't mean that you don't point out the fact that they live a life in rebellion against God. It's it's a matter about the reality, not the degree of it. We live in rebellion against God. Every person who, who is outside of faith, their life is messed up. You helping them to realize their life is messed up isn't an issue. Now, if you start clicking off all the things you think they're doing wrong, that's when it becomes an issue. And you've got to have the discernment to understand the difference. But the issue is this woman had an estrangement from God. She lived a life that was sin. There was something fundamentally wrong with her life. And Christ is pointing out what she already knows. Because that's what he's there to deal with. He's not there to get into religious discussion. But notice what happens. She tries to take it back there. And so she tries one more time. 
She said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That's a huge deal, by the way. For she recognized the fact that he, she had never met him, and he knew all about her sin. She's figuring it out, all right? This guy's different. He's not your normal Jew, and he's not condemning her. You are a prophet. That's huge. You are a man of God. But then she tries one last time. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place for men ought to worship. So she's doing one more time. She's trying to point out the difference in the way that they worship. She's trying one last time to divert it from the real issue of her life. And then this is where Jesus does what we really ought to see more than anything else when it comes to helping people come to faith. Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now think about it. There is no place to worship at that mountain because the temple's destroyed. The hour is going to come when in Jerusalem they won't be able to worship because in 70 AD the temple gets destroyed. And you won't be able to worship as a Samaritan or a Jew either way. So he's saying all of this discussion about the religion is irrelevant. Notice what he's saying. Um, well, in verse 22 he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now he deals with it. Not about religion, but he deals with the heart of the matter. Your worship is in ignorance. Ours is in revelation. Now when he says salvation is from the Jews, he doesn't mean you have to be saved to be a Jew, but he's going back to father, father Abraham. Remember, they all go back to Abraham. In Abraham, God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Isaac, through his children. And that is all the way through David. It is through that progeny. It is all the way through the Jews. She is a half Jew. She is, as a Samaritan, partially Jewish. So he's saying, your whole way of looking at things is messed up. You don't even understand the truth that has been revealed to you. Your fundamental problem is everything is fouled up from your place of worship to the things that you believe. He said, an hour is coming, and now is. In other words, it's right now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So here's the issue. To connect to God is not through a place, a location, a system of rules and belief. It is not through a religious anything. It is a spiritual connection. You worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus fulfills both that. He's already told her he is the living water. He has already told her how she must find it. And now he says you need a spiritual connection, not a physical connection from a mountain or religious system. And you need a truth connection, that which is true. And he reveals that of himself. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. They believe the Messiah. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. He said, I know a Messiah will come, and he'll set everything straight. And this is what Jesus said. I who speak to you am he. Ultimately, our task is to help people realize that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. It's one of the fascinating things that I, that I come across a lot is when people, and, and there's whole denominations and, and people who think they're scholars, whatever that means, and religious leaders, whatever that means, who will talk about, you know, Jesus never really declared that he's the Messiah. And sometimes I want to say, would you just read the New Testament? 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read those four books. There's 66 books in the Bible. Skip the other 62. Did I do that math right? Yeah, that's good. You know, I tell you, math was okay. The third time I took it in high school, I did pretty good. And you cannot help but come away understanding that Jesus said, I am the Messiah. He says it. When the Messiah comes, I am he. Pretty much says he's the Messiah. And this is what he's revealing to who he is. Now, he's been slowly working this relationship. Now, we don't know how long much time took between this and all this. But notice, notice what Christ is doing. He's dealing with this woman. He's dealing with her point of being. You know, when when she wants to get, drag him away into a long religious conversation, he's not doing that. He talks about her life, where it is. Where are you in your life? You know, when when, when she talks about the things, you know, that she tries to push him away, he just brings her back and says, here's the things that are important. What's important is that we understand truth. What's important is we understand the spirit. He's talking about all the things that are important, the things that are necessary. And then finally he just says, look, I'm the Messiah. When she comes to the point when it's ready, he says, I am the one she's been looking for. And somewhere what we've got to understand in the culture that we live in is what people need is to understand that Jesus is the one who will save them. Because that's what they need. Now listen, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I've told you before, I've been trained in so many evangelism programs that used to frustrate me so much because there was this manual. I've got the manuals. i got the manual in one of them. It's my goodness. I had to memorize all this stuff. And I was back in seminary, and it was, it was I came in for this personal evangelism, a church evangelism class. I took it for, and in order to pass the class, I had to be certified in this, and I had to know all this stuff and memorize it. I just remember memorizing it, saying, this is waste of my time. You can't do this with people. I can't go up, knock on their door, and go through the, you know, the fire program. Talk about your friends. Talk about your whatever, your IRs, your R's, your relationships, the E's, whatever. I can't talk about all that. And then, oh, by the way, if you knew you died today, would you go to heaven? And, and if you say yes, how do you know you will go there? That's never going to happen. I'll never have that conversation. It'll never get there. And it never has. But here's what, here's what does happen. I meet people, and I get to know them, and I have discussions, and I connect with their life. And at some point, I get to share something about Christ. So about an hour before I came, I made a comment in, in a platform, of, in, in a way, talking about grace and karma and that they can't exist. And so one of my friends, who's not a believer, asked me, could you explain that? He and I have had some dialogues and conversations. And so here's the opportunity that Christ gave me. Not to talk about religion. Not to set out a bunch of doctrinal things they misbelieved. Gave me the opportunity to talk about grace. Grace. Which is exactly what Jesus is doing to this woman. He's talking about grace. You see, ultimately what people need is to understand who Jesus is and what the difference he makes in life. Now, I'm going to answer people's religious questions. I got that. I'm just not going to fight with people over it. I don't like arguing with religion with people. First, for several reasons. First place, it's frustrating to me because they're so unbelievably ignorant and I can't help but get smarter. You can't fix ignorance. I'm serious. 
They don't understand what's in here because they're not followers of Christ. So they can't understand the connection between Israel and Christ. They can't understand all that. They can't understand the depths of all those things because they're not followers of Jesus. So it's hard to explain to people. It's like trying to help me understand you know, things that I have no clue about. Like, I can't even think of anything. There's so many of them to choose from, and I'm going to get me in trouble if I say any of them. Should have thought that's kind of like I could thought out quicker. But there are certain things that you just can't help a person with. I, don't under, I, I got it. I don't understand why people watch American Idol or The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or any of those shows. They are keeping up with the Kardashians or The Real Housewives of... Santa Fe. I don't understand that stuff. It's a complete, I'm completely lost. You can't help me understand it. And that's the way it is with people. And that's what Jesus does. Notice what it said. His disciples came. And I don't have time to go through all this. And they were amazed. Why? Because he was speaking with a woman. You know what they were shocked about? He was, why are you speaking to a Samaritan woman, Jesus? <laughs> and no one said anything to her like, well, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? They were just shocked. She left. She left her water pot. Why? She was coming back. And she went to her city, and this is what she said. Come and see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Or literally, this is this the one. This can be the Christ. And they went to the city, and they were coming to him. Why? They were shocked. How, how did this guy, this Jewish guy, know all about her? Her testimony. And listen, our story is important. It's not as important as Jesus' story. <laughs> I remember growing up, you know, going through I mean, early in ministry, going up early in ministry, we were always taught, write out your personal testimony. Well, I don't want to write out my personal I hate writing. My story is kind of boring. But also, who cares about my story? Now, what I have, my, my life matters, and I can use it, but ultimately it's about Jesus. His story really matters. And so they were telling. And Jesus was talking with them, and they were saying, Rabbi, eat. And I don't want to go into all that. He said, I have food to eat. But notice what he says. In verse, uh, um, in verse 35, I say to you, um, there are four months in the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields. They are wide into harvest. Now, what's happening is the people of Sychar are coming out to Christ. The whole city's coming out. And back then, you know, y'all are all so colorful. You wear nice things. I got a nice green shirt. You got nice things. Back then, everybody wore the same color. Boring kind of, you know, there, boring, right there. Brian, take off the little, Brian, stand up. Stand up, Ryan. Go ahead, stand up. Come on, stand up. Now, pretend that that little logo went on there and just that boring color. That just, bo- everybody was looking boring like Brian. And they looked like, they looked like the wheat was waving back and forth. You know what? This, this is a profound thing that Jesus is saying. <laughs> People are ready to be saved. All around us, they're ready. Why don't we see more people come to Christ? They're ready. I mean, they like to feel, they're ready. Why aren't they coming to Christ? Because we're not going out to them. And, and that's the thing to this day. Remember, I, I was reading some stuff today. I've read this a thousand times. People who are not followers of Christ will come to a church if someone invites them. The number one reason... 
80% of all people who come to a church for the first time were invited. The, odds, the statistics are a little bit different for us because of our location and some things, and so that, that gets thrown off. But still, most people are invited. If you don't invite people, how do you expect them to ever come to Jesus? What? They're not going to show up on their own. So the fields are widened to harvest. So they all get there. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Notice, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things of him. So they believed initially because of her testimony. So when they came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay, and he stayed two days. Amazing thing. He stayed two days with the Samaritans. The Jews would have hated him for that. And notice many more believe. Why? Because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the Jews. No, world. Her story got him there. But because of his story, they believed he was the savior. So, when you think about last week, you saw Nicodemus, this brilliant Pharisee, this rich, powerful, wealthy man who, who risks so much to come to Christ at night. And Jesus just cuts through it all and gets right to the point Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. Everything you believed, everything you've been taught, everything you've been teaching is wrong. You've got to have a new birth. And then he comes to this exact opposite, and he just cuts to and says, everything you believe is wrong. Your system is wrong. It's all messed up. You need living water. Your spiritual life is a mess. You need living water, and I am the one you need. He tells them both the same thing. You need Jesus. That's what people need. And I've been harping on this a lot lately, and it's just the more I see The the more I see our culture move away from the things we have traditionally valued, the more I see our culture embrace things that, from my perspective, are just evil, that are sinful, the less compelled I am to try to convince them they're wrong and I'm right, what I understand is there's nothing I can do to change their hardened hearts. So who they need is Jesus. And if our group of people that we call a church, us Christians, if we will begin to understand that we've got to find ways to help all these different types of people with all these different lives and lifestyles and beliefs, and we're not going to critique them, and we're not going to judge them, we're going to help them come to Jesus. When we have the food truck fiesta, which we're having in a couple of Wednesdays, aren't we? Uh, Brian, guys, aren't we having those? Josh, you know the calendar, right? What day is that? (laughs) I got you, didn't I? So we'll talk about that later. Um, Two weeks, three weeks, something like that. We have have different people show up sometimes in, in, in the food trucks. But they all love to come here. And they all enjoy it because they make some money because evidently y'all buy a lot of food and you need to lay off uh, some of the brisket tacos because save them for when I get there. But here's the thing. October 16th, 16th, thank you. I forgot Mike was back there. But thanks, Mike, for looking that up on the uh, computer. 
because uh, I know you didn't remember it because I've seen your memory. It's not that good. So here's the thing. The thing about coming here is the way we treat them because some of them are very different, I know, than we may be. The one thing I, I, that I, and I, and I appreciate this for, me, for y'all. I, mean, I appreciate y'all doing this. The one thing that I, I, I never hear from people, I've not heard it, I hope I, never, I won't hear it, knock on wood, is that when people come here, they feel like they're being judged or evaluated. The one thing I do here, it's not, I don't care about friendliness, it's not friendly. It's acceptance. That when people come, they feel like people accept them. So here's the thing. That's the first step in helping people come to Christ. That no matter who they are, we may, people understand we're not going to accept what they do and how they believe. They get that. They understand that. They just want to be accepted and loved as a person. And if you accept them and love them as a person, whether they be Nicodemus or the Samaritan, it's a whole lot easier for them to believe you when you tell them Jesus loves them. And that connection is so much simpler. So, two radical encounters with a righteous man and a sinful woman. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the conflict Jesus had with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, specifically about the Sabbath. And when you understand their conflict with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, so much of Scripture becomes clearer when you see why they wanted to kill Jesus. Questions you may have. I'm supposed to go longer, so I'm over my normal time because I'm getting hassled by the Awana people if I let y'all out too early. If I let y'all out, just hang around. Don't go take the kids yet. They've got to stay till 7.30. You have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Yes, sir. Yes, culture. And then, you know, it's, uh, you seem to suggest it's affected the way your message because, of, you know, don't point out this sin. That the, the way the culture is has affected my message? Is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, has it affected your message? And I'm asking that because I've, I've read about what is called emerging, emergent church. Yeah, emergent church, yeah. Okay, and... We're not an emerging church, by the way. Okay, with the, the uh, adjectives that are put to that is make it warm, friendly, yeah. and popular. Yeah, never do that. And then, I, because I came from, you know, strict church. Yeah. I mean, uh, not speaking tongues, not yeah. else, but fundamental. Yeah, you and came from a fundamental background. Was yeah. about a lot of times it was conviction. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, I got you. But now it's like, is there, is there a movement to make it popular? Yeah, someplace not here. Here's the thing. I never change the message. I change the way I deliver the message. I don't, for instance, on Sunday mornings at 9.45 and 11, I wear what I'm wearing now. I don't wear a coat and tie. I've changed the delivery. So, 
What you need to understand about, you know, y'all don't even know what a merchant church is and all that. What you need to understand is there's a movement within a very large, generous definition of Christianity that talks about some of the things you said, making it more popular, not talking about sin and those things like that. That's not ever the issue. Jesus talked about her sin. What he didn't do was condemn her for those sins and point out all of those sins in a condemning way. So let me give you an example. And I'm going to use the example of Troy, if I could, not in terms of sin. Troy came from a background similar to what you described. And he'll talk, and I don't want to put words in Troy's mouth, but I'll, just, I'll do it anyways because sometimes he, it's clear if I say it and Troy doesn't. But, he, but, uh, but Troy comes from a background where you know, he grew up, King James Version of the Bible only. You didn't wear certain clothes. You didn't do certain things. You believed certain stuff. It was a very, could I use the word judgmental frame of mind? Not your family, but a lot of your background. Would that be fair to say? Very judgmental of how people were. Since that, Troy, <laughs> you know, some point, Troy got saved in that, so I'm not saying he wasn't saved, but Troy had a renewal of thought in that process. And you begin to realize that wasn't the way you reach people. For one thing, you don't reach many people that way. So if that's not, Christ doesn't do that. It's nowhere is that taught in the scripture. And so now you have a conversation with Troy, who's dressed over there in shorts and a t-shirt and a frosted tipped hair. Uh, so I'm just kidding. He's not, hasn't gone that far. He just dies it. Uh, but anyways, you know, he now has the conversations. That we, we talk about the need for uh, more contemporary styles of doing things, you know, not pointing out, not being judgmental of people for their sins, not going, not, there's not, there's not just one version of the Bible, obviously, English version to read, moving away from that. And, and the point for that is, and I grew up, I didn't grow up in a strict environment. Uh, I grew up probably in a little more, not, not near, I just wasn't that strict at all, it was different, it was a little more um, progressive, modern, not in a bad sense, but Modern Debbie, what was it? More, a little more accepting. We didn't have those issues as much. We were too busy splitting and fighting and um, drinking and cussing at my church. Uh, and deacons smoking outside. Um, and so the, the, thing, the thing about it, Richard, is it's never about changing the message. It's about helping people connect to the message. And so what, you, what too often happened in the culture we all grew up in, and people came from a church background. We would sit out there and we would just point out all the sin. All the sin. You're doing this, you're sinning. You're doing this, you're sinning. You're doing this, you're sinning. You're doing that, sinning. And study after study, I was reading stuff today. People abandoning the church, abandoning Christianity because they feel like all we do is judge them. And so they're leaving. And the purpose of Christianity isn't to get people to leave Jesus. It's to attract people to Jesus. So what is, what is it that attracts people to Jesus? It's forgiveness of their sin that attracts them. It's love. So here's what Jesus says. A new commandment. Uh, we, we heard this last Thursday. The new commandment that I give to you. That you should love one another as I have loved you. That is the commandment of Jesus. Jesus has two commandments. Love God, love others. And then the Great Commission. And then he says... He boils all that, just love other people as I have loved you. And so the, the, the thought now of what you see, not in the immersion church, you've got to be careful what you read, but what you see from guys like me is a, a, a refocusing on preaching what Jesus taught, which is love and, and acceptance, not of sin ever, but of people, and helping them understand the gospel. I preached two weeks ago, you've got to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. 
That's as old school as it gets. I just didn't stand up here in a suit and tie and, and uh, jet, back, uh, jet back hair and yell and screaming at people. But I said, I explained what repentance is. So I've never wavered from that. It is the same thing I would have preached 25 years ago. I package it differently. And that's really important. So that's the real difference. Can I ask? Oh, yeah, you can ask all you want because I got till 730. <laughs> I, uh, I received a challenge from Can I use your name, Bob? Yeah. Oh, he did. People use Bob's name a lot, trust me. But uh, he gave a challenge to me to come and talk to you, but I'm going to ask here because you brought up repentance. And brought up what? Of repentance. Repentance. And everybody I listen to, read about, I've been looking into it, I've been researching that. And it is, you know, from the Hebrew, Hebrew, different direction, and from the Greek, changing of the mind. But uh, in a fundamental way, I read and listen to scholars, R.C. Sproul, I don't know what you think of him, but... Before or after he died? <laughs> uh, his recordings, the sermons, and, and discussions. And uh, he's, I read in many places, including Billy Graham Evangelistic Association that a necessary element of repentance is contrition. Do you agree with that? A necessary element of repentance is contrition? Contrition or broken heart or sorrow. Um, repentance isn't of itself necessary. The components that make up repentance, fundamentally from the word, is a change of the direction. So I don't, I don't split those hairs ever. I'm not going to say if you're not contrite for your sin, you didn't repent. Uh, because people understand, because contrition isn't the biblical concept. Repentance is the biblical concept. Uh, would you say uh, David uh, in uh, Psalms 51? Uh, in, uh, was he sorry for his sin? Was that, was yeah. That, is that an example of contrition? It's an example of repentance. So I'm going to be very careful. See, I do this. I'm very, very careful how I word things. Okay, okay. So contrition is to be sorry for your sin. Of course, it is understood in the concept of repentance, that you're going to be sorry that you sinned. You're going to regret your sin. But it's not the emotional aspect. It's the admittance of it. So when David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your heart, it is the confession of that that is the repentance, not the emotional attachment to that. Because people can be emotionally attached to contrition and feel sorry, and never repent. So when you say contrition or sorrow is necessary for repentance, the problem is you may make it to where a person feels that sorrow or contrition is repentance, that is synonymous with repentance, and it is not synonymous with repentance. Repentance is the change of direction of one's life. So it is an admission. So contrition is the admission of sin, not necessarily that you have to have a certain emotional response to it. Does that help? 
So I would say contrition, I don't, you know, that's it. I don't like being pinned down to other people's definitions, ever. So other people's definitions, I haven't read, I, didn't, I know what Sproul teaches, I know what Billy, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I don't ever get pinned down to their definitions. I will just say to you, repentance in and of itself is an admission that you have done wrong, and that's what's required. I'm not going to add to it something else as part of the definition. Yeah. Yeah. And he got out of the pews, came down the aisle, and uh, he was about, you know, he pulled back the tears and he had his head down. Yeah. And uh, he made the statement, uh, uh, "Will God forgive a wicked boy like me?" Yeah. Nine years old. And the pastor asked him what happened. He said, I disobeyed my mother. And so he's being contrite. So is that a, did he have the wrong? I got no idea. I can't answer that. I ha- your illustration, I just can't, I, I don't know the components of it, so I can't tell you. So you're asking me to comment on things that I can't comment on. I was saved when I was nine. I wasn't wicked. I didn't cry. I was a mean little cuss. But that's about it, you know. Hadn't changed much. But I, I can't comment on things like that because I simply don't know. And I, I don't, you're never going to pin me down on stuff like that. I just don't, I don't go down that road. Anything else? Y'all are free. Oh, 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 yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yes. Correct. And you, and you know your child best, and, and 11-year-olds are different than 17-year-olds that explain stuff like that. So, yeah, that seems a pretty good explanation. Yeah, I mean, the principle ultimately that is involved with the Samaritan woman is him pointing out to her what she already knows. 
She is living in sin. The, the sin itself is not the issue in John 4. In John 4, it is not the sin. Just like in John 3, they don't even discuss Nicodemus' sin. It's the fact that you sin, period. Types of sins matter. Homosexuality matters because of the distortion of, of, of you know, the image of God and reproduction, all that stuff, which matters, but not to an 11-year-old. To a 21-year-old, it might matter, only if I'm getting into a discussion with it on a technical basis. But for the most part, I just say sexual sin is all the same in one sense. It's a violation of one man, one woman for life. That's how I look at it. And you did probably a pretty good job explaining to her. Okay, now we're getting to the point where it's getting long. Anybody else? Those are good questions. I should have been here last week. Could ask them then. All right, we'll see you all next week. Thanks.